So this is a long one, guys, and it's long because it's good. You need to hear every single thing that is said. Um, today is a super special conversation with uh, my former English professor, Dr. Natalie King Fedroso. Um, and we talk about a variety of things, and um, actually, I catch this at the end of our conversation, but she said this conversation was good for her heart and good for her soul. And we talk a lot, a lot of things related to locks and, you know, what it means to grow out locks for you know, over 20 years, um, as well as creating spaces for people of color and black people, especially with everything going on in the world. Um, we're just understanding this idea of rootedness and black culture, and we're really defining that, redefining that, especially um, with everything going on in the world. Um, and we talk about it. We're ready to talk about it. Um, this is a podcast in a space where we are addressing black issues, black hair, um, and all of the above, and this episode is no exception. Um, so please give it a listen. Uh, I'll stop talking. And yeah, this is Dr. Natalie King Pedroso. Okay, so this is a super, super, super special episode of A Lock Story. I feel like I'm always saying that. But this episode is like truly the product of the conversations I've been having thus far. So this conversation was inspired by a conversation I already had. And so I'm really excited to welcome someone I really respect. Um, and I'm really excited to have on the show today, Dr. King, uh, Dr. Natalie King Pedroso, who was actually my former English teacher. Um, she teaches at Florida A&M University, Go Rattlers. Um, and she also is the founder of the Cotton Ball Collective, which is going to be something we talk about a lot in this next hour. So thank you so much, Dr. Pedroso. Welcome. Oh, Carlin, happy to be here. And I have <laughs> to share with your audience, she's exceptional here, but this didn't just happen today. She has always uh, been exceptional. Thank you so much. So again, an honor for me to be here as well. Thank you so much. Um, so really, I think when it's, before we get into it in your last story, Willie, what brought you here today was the fact that I was having a conversation with um, Sharon, um, who was, uh, I think, episode three, and she was just talking about the wise, venerated women in our lives that happen to have locks. Um, and we also realized that that may not be a coincidence, because when I think about, you know, some of the female professors at FAMU that I feared, <laughs> truly, <laughs> Because you guys were truly the hardest professors that I had in my college experience in English. Um, and also your wisdom and also tying in um, a lot of the um, Black authors that I aspire to when we read, Toni Morrison. Um, I wanted to have you on today because you have a story to tell. Um, so let's start from the beginning. When did you sell your locks? How old were you? What headspace were you in? All that good stuff. Okay, and again, that's a story in itself. Yeah. And I was blessed to have grown up in a home with a mother and father in the 60s mm -hmm. who were FAMUans. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay, they were FAMUans. Yeah. And, you know, unlike, and every now and then you hear someone state, you know, I, I knew there was the time in my life when I was ashamed to be black. I can never say that. <laughs> yeah. I can never, ever say that. And uh, more than anything, they made us know we were beautiful just the way we are. And they had five daughters. And the funny thing is we're all colors of the rainbow, <laughs> okay? And they said, you are all wonderful and beautiful and that actually that's where my lock journey started sure. you know, understanding that when i look in the mirror i'm fine you have to feel that i mean you don't have to feel that way before you started mm -hmm. but i feel like from the women that i've talked to they're at least on that journey to you know desiring to be that truly self-actualized you know Oh, yes. What's that song by Sweet Honey and the Rock? There are no mirrors in my Nana's house mm -hmm. and no one there to tell me all these negative things about myself and impose certain standards that had absolutely nothing to do with my reality. I was blessed in that respect and um, with four amazing sisters and um, exceptional women. I can't imagine. You're giving me very like Alicia Keys and like, <laughs> what is the movie I'm thinking of? Um, 
Queen Latifah. Okay, okay. Um, you know what I'm talking and, about? And love them all and yes. respect yes. them yes. all. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's stated, uh, <laughs> and I'm laughing. I remember when I was a senior in college, and I said, woohoo, I'm done with this. I'm never coming back. <laughs> but that semester, second semester, my senior year, I had an absolutely amazing professor, mm -hmm. Edward Kamal Brathwaite, and we lost him a few months ago wow. from Barbados and a well-known historian, but poet. Mm -hmm. And as I sat there in his class, the title of the course was Prospero and Caliban. And Shakespeare and this idea of the colonizer and the colonized, you know, how do we exist in this sphere? And it was a course about the Caribbean. But as he spoke, I said, this makes me think about my Afro-Southern home along the Florida-Georgia border. And I was in Massachusetts at that time. And I remember even my first trip to Jamaica and to be in awe, you know, when I was a little kid, but to return as an adult and you know, to see all of these people look just like me and it didn't mean anything, okay? It's okay, this is just the way it is here and um, accepting in that sense. But my lock journey truly began when I was about to start my first job. And when I looked at my daughter, hmm. and knowing when I left, when I graduated, my hair was relaxed. Mm -hmm. okay. However, after I signed, put that ink on that contract, I went natural the next day. I sure did. And um, and the statement I'm getting ready to make, I'm not trying to impose this on anyone. I just knew that for me, when my hair was relaxed, I felt like I was living a lie. Mm. It's fair. Mm -hmm. I felt too. I never had a perm or relaxer, but I felt like I couldn't be my fullest self, I know, when I had and, and that's And you talk about self-actualization. Yeah. I, I said, you know, I've done it. You know, I, I've acquired this PhD, but, but there's something else I've got to do. Yeah. And for myself, my daughter is looking at me. Mm. And I want her to understand she is perfect and wonderful the way she is. And that is how my journey began. And I have no regrets. Oh. So you okay. started, so did you start your hair yourself? Did you go somewhere? Because also a part of this also we have to describe your locks to the people because they have no idea how okay. long and beautiful. And also okay. color in there I see. Um, so you're right. Yes, and some of it, you know, again, my, my grays, my browns, <laughs> they're all there uh, to be celebrated. Yeah. And Sharon in Fort Lauderdale was the person who started my locks for me. And you know, after that, it just, and she was a sister from the Caribbean, and they just took on a life of their own once she helped get them started. And uh, again, I, I felt free. I felt free. <laughs> I told you about it. He said, Nat, I've seen you here. Yeah. Braids, Afro. And he was the one who told me. He said, I loved your braids. He said, but I want to see you. I want to see you. Yeah. And he said, my locks are his absolute favorite hairstyle. They're mine too. Okay. Yeah. They're mine. And um, the fact that, you know, again, as black women, and I, I think I told you about the story uh, of being a black professional, and not even just a black professional, black woman in the world, period. And oftentimes having to contend with European beauty standards. Absolutely. And, and more than anything, you know, what our significant others think about us 
And that was comforting because it had been on my mind. It was something I wanted to do anyway. And I said, okay, man. Okay, okay. I want to do it anyway. But I think I told you about the flight with um, a woman and uh, she was a scholar. And her husband was seated on the other side. And she looked at me. I love your hair. But my husband told me if I ever got locks, he would have a fit. And he started going like this in the seat. (laughs) Girl, he's not for you. He's not for you. Right, right. Okay, right. And, you know, I'll tell you, Carlin, um, this lock journey for me opened the gate to other journeys. Um, Journeys as far as being a scholar and interests that I have there. And, you know, Toni Morrison, whom I love dearly, Derek Walcott, who I also celebrate um, from St. Lucia. And other people I've had a chance to write about and meet and talk about along the way. Mm. Which ultimately, as I was at um, a school in South Florida, led me here. And there's something about coming here and feeling like myself. And, and the stated, I would never tell a black woman, a woman what she should do with her hair. Never, ever. Because I've had sisters approach me and say, I love your hair. But my boss told me if I ever did it, I wouldn't work here again. Yeah. So I would never impose that on anyone. We do what we have to do. But for me, this is what works. And, and coming back here on the Florida-Georgia border, for me, that's coming to the root because my parents' roots, although I grew up in South Florida, are here mm-hmm. along the Florida-Georgia border. And um, being able to take my daughters to a cemetery and you look far and wide and you're related to everyone there. That's true. Okay. Rootedness that you mentioned. So, and we're, oh, we're talking about like in terms of we're talking about rootedness, and I think that goes back to ancestry and also like oh, growth and maturation. Um, let's talk about like what, how long? Number one, have you been growing out your hair? How many years have you had your locks? Um, and how? What have you learned from growing out your hair? I think you know you mentioned like meeting other scholars who are bonded by their hair. Um, I feel like there's the secret society, you know, by having locks for um, however many years. I feel like you guys have like reached this level of evolution that I'm trying to reach as well. <laughs> I'll tell you. Initially, when I grew it out. I'd have little twists, but I'd also sport an afro, and I had a nice fro mm-hmm. when I grew up. But um, then with the twist, I decided, you know, I'd like the look, and I'm ready. That's when I just said, let's do it. Um, let's lock up. And um, that, and, you know, again, in that community of scholars, when I think about it, because that was a decision I'd already made. Most of us sport a natural hair. Right. And I also felt that it was important, and it's interesting, the different spheres where I'm coming from. And at that time, I was teaching at a PWI, you know, predominantly white institution. And I felt it was also important for my students to know and my colleagues to know, I'm fine. Right. That's fair. That's fair. So, like I said, how how long have you had your locks? Then that was one question you haven't got answered. Because <laughs> there's so I long. locked up in ninety nine. Ninety nine. The year I married, <laughs> and I went natural in ninety seven. Has in preparation for them. Yes. Has there ever been a time where you've struggled with your hair? Because I think, you know, what people in my stage, you know, a year out are looking to you for lessons and for insight. Oh, like, okay. you, you know, I'm going to do this, okay? Years in, like, what do you, I can barely imagine my hair hitting my shoulder, let alone, you know, my back. Carlin, 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 number one, the length you have now. That was one of my favorite lengths. And I shared that with you. People always I shared that, that with you yes. before. Okay. okay. I shared that with you. young and you look, you know, just like your youthful, radical self. 
and, and loved every step of it and it stated for my daughters because now I have two to see it. And again, for my husband to understand, Natalie, we're not going to be straightening any hair here because they are beautiful the way they are and the world is hard enough. We want them to know they are fine. And I said, well, thank you, because that's the way I feel. <laughs> okay, that, that works for me. Yeah. But, do you um, feel like that's translated to them through your hair, then? Well, I guess. And, <laughs> I, and I, I will share pictures. They're not locks. Yeah. They don't have locks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, and the funny thing is they both had a lot of hair, which was a lot of work, okay? <laughs> but... My youngest daughter, her hair is very short now, it's closely cropped. And she said, and oh, this, this is good that you're asking me this question. Um, when she attended middle school and she had all this big hair and it was not a predominantly black school, she said, I got tired of people putting their hands in my hair. I am not a pet. It's an unfair compromise. I actually was just talking to a grown working professional who did the same thing because his coworkers would not stop putting their hands in his hair. And the thing is, I was like, I've dealt with that when I was also, you know, in middle school, elementary school, high school even. But to imagine, you know, a 2020, a world where a non-white per black person yes. put hands in your hair is pretty absurd. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was what she said, enough already. It's almost like she was forced to shrink, you know, to adapt, to ward off white hands. Right, okay, right. Yeah. And she stated, she went for the radical chop. I mean, her hair, she was dumb like this, okay. And she had lots of hair. And her sister as well, and neither of them, Chloe, I know she had her hair blow-dried, when she would dance to get it into a knot, but they've never had their hair straightened before in their lives. Okay, and both of them, I know how hair is blow dried once. And I remember when she was in college, this is on Jordan number one, and she had braids for many years, you know, lots of hair braids. And then um, she segued into law school. And, and I said, her braids, you know, they're cute braids. <laughs> I, I said, but, you know, what's, what's the law school look? What was the next step? <laughs> and, 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 okay, but she looked at me and, you know, I respect her. She looked me in my face. She said, mom, I'm trying to show the world that we can do this another way. I said, oh, okay, I've done my job. <laughs> okay, and, and that was it. And she kept the braids until about, um, a year and a half ago, and okay, her hair now is like Stacey Abrams. Okay, that's fair. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why the thing is, and that's why I think the space to talk about hair and like livelihood is they're so connected to each other. Um, and so, you know, even though I'm starting on this platform of locks, when people cut their hair, like there's an emotional reaction and a social reaction to it. And I think, you know, the idea of those commitments, cutting your hair off is a commitment, you know? locking your hair is a commitment but i think that commitment is also telling of like where you are in your life and like where you're going and what you're committed to you know um, i don't remember her name carlin but i remember years ago I, I was watching a scholar on television and she said if you talk about black hair locking up is a phd in black hair Okay. And I mean, that's because it's just like, for me, and like I said, talking to you, I'm trying to figure out what is the secret? What is the secret? Um, and I think what you're saying is really just like self-assurance in your yes. own being. Um, and I think that can look different on different people. It doesn't have to be locks. Like locks are not the end goal mm -hmm. for everyone, you know? Um, they, just, they just happen to work for me. Yeah. And, and I feel particularly for Black women, anything that makes you feel confident, and self-assured mm -hmm. and, and beautiful for yourself. I'm not saying your husband or your partner, anyone, 
for yourself. And, and, and like I said, I'm happy my husband loves him, but I did this for myself and I felt at peace. And uh, you're right, they, they're all the way down past my bottom now. <laughs> so there, and then I do this in the summer <laughs> because at times it's, it's warm, but it's also comfortable. What is what does maintenance look like for you? Are you someone that retwists yourself? Are you retwist with family? Is it something that's like therapeutic for you? Because I know that before I locked my hair, I hated washing it. Like wash day was the worst thing that ever happened to me. But now, and it's probably because my hair is shorter also, but now I look forward to re-swiss. I look forward to the touch-up. Now um, see, I loved it. <laughs> that length okay I love the twist and everything until about here and washing up it, it is a, a little more involved now but again it, it has a life of its own and the beautiful thing is um, when I wash I just get my knot in my head and tie it up walk out let it do my thing shake it let it air dry and I'm ready okay and I think that's the beautiful thing Carlin that, that you're probably experiencing you're always ready. Always ready. <laughs> Freedom, the, the lack of limitations, I think it's something where I'm always like trying to convince people to get locks because I'm just like, your world has been so limited by what people tell you your black hair can do. Um, and what black people tell us our black hair can do. And Carlin, I remember when I used to get my hair relaxed, sitting in the salon all day, that time, the money, all right? Um, so I want to talk a little about Cotton Bowl Collective, um, and I love that. I feel like it's cosmic, just like how we were able to, you know, connect again during a time when a lot of Black issues are at the forefront also. Um, and because a lot of the racial issues and the racial concerns and injustices against Black people are at the forefront, Black art and history and music and culture is also being talked about. Um, and so insert you as well, trying to doing this like deep dive into like, what is black culture? Because it is divided up by region. It's divided up by, you know, ethnicity, um, mm -hmm. you have people, you have African people. Mm -hmm. And so for someone like myself, who is a black American, you know, our ancestry gets lost in the fold. Um, so it's so interesting that you are exploring now, like, the things that we experience every day that we don't always count as culture are the things that make up who we are and who, quite honestly, white people are trying to copy. But <laughs> I want you to get into it and talk from your perspective. And I know you saw the beautiful story of the flag and the black flag. Um, so, yes. And, and Carmen, I, I hang on your every word right now because, yes, yeah. <laughs> to even be in an environment and to oftentimes tire of hearing people say that African-Americans have no culture because that is not true, okay? Yeah. It's not true at all. And um, my father, and I think I mentioned him to you, um, grew up on, he said, a farm. It was actually a plantation, okay? <laughs> on the Florida-Georgia border and he is, an amazing storyteller, talk about the oral tradition. And my mother, oh my goodness, her stories. And, and, and one day, that, that's a story I will tell you, her story. And I'm, I'm not the first Dr. King in my family. My mother's the first Dr. King. And for her mother, I know <laughs> her mom was a maid, okay? Her mother was a maid. And for her mother to have the faith in her and the faith in education, for her to climb these heights and to have faith in all of us to move on. But you know, all of this. Ancestral, just the ancestral. Yes, lining yes, yes. And, and even to understand those ancestors who did not have a chance to become educated. There are other forms of education that they were practicing and passing on to us. And, and that's what a lot of this represents. And you know, for so long, and you know, one of my closest friends is, is from the Caribbean as well. We've been buddies since we were teenagers. And you know, we talk a great deal. And to hear people again, you know, my flag and you know, this and that and the other. And it's like, hmm. 
And I know we have a culture. Right. I know because we practice it. We are practitioners. And I said, I, I need a symbol just like all of these other brothers and sisters have. I need a symbol. And I, I traveled to an artist in Georgia and I asked because he does beautiful work, but for some reason he was not able to realize my dream. And daughter number one said, uh, Mom, why don't you reach out to daughter number two, Chloe? You know, she's an artist. I'm like, really? Huh, really? She said, yeah, because Chloe was 16 years old. She was only 16. And I said, okay, I'll approach her. And, and I'm not an artist. And I kind of, uh, you know, and, and I want this in here, in the picture, in the center, and on, on the periphery. You know, I, I want these crops that represent the plantation. And here they are. And, and, and right there in the middle, I want a black woman. And she looked at me and she nodded. Okay, mom. She disappeared for an hour. And she returned. And she put the pad in my lap. And Carlin, she didn't give me what I asked for. She gave me something better. And I looked at it and I just broke down crying. I broke down crying. I said, this is it. And she had the crops there, but in the middle, the shield is a slave ship. And she said, mama, it is because, and she said, I hear what you're saying about the black woman and her fruitful womb. But she said, men, women, and children came over on that ship, mom. And she said, this ship is also here because for some reason it is the thing our people have been taught to be ashamed of and we are not ashamed. She was 16. And I, like I said, I just boo-hoo cried more <laughs> when she did that raise a child like that. <laughs> yeah. And after that, it just took wings. I said, okay, let me find someone who can actually put this on a flag. And I, I think it was Hurricane Michael weekend was when the flag arrived here. And the house was, we left because the storm had come through, but we returned to the house. And I think it was Michael. I'm trying to remember which storm. And I, I picked up our mail because they didn't even deliver our mail here. They dropped it off somewhere else. And that was when I saw the flag for the first time. Yeah. And I said, oh. and the response people have when they see it, it's visceral, mm. visceral. And I know Hunter wore it on her campus and um, she's a student at Stanford. And she said, mom, because you have the crest and under it, it says rootedness with dignity, without shame. She said, I don't know what happened. I wore it on campus one day. And she said, mom, I didn't have to say a word. People were like, oh, you're talking about me. You're talking about me. And I was moved. And she said, students reacted that way. Professors reacted that way when they saw it. Um, African-Americans, she said, but also students from the Caribbean. Yeah. Because it, it's also their journey. I understand. It's a connected history. Mm -hmm. I get it. But that um, was our journey um, to rootedness. And when I decided, I'm like, oh, a company named Chloe, you gotta help me again. <laughs> she said, okay, mom. Cotton Oval Collective. And I said, I love it. And, and even with it, because, and, and, and it's interesting, I was on Instagram about a week or two ago and, and someone had published this striking model with cotton stalks behind her. And their question was, what is your response to seeing cotton? What is your response? And, and, and interesting, a, a number of brothers and sisters who were from 
the African continent. We're like, well, you know, I, I guess, you know, my response is not as emotional as maybe some others would be, but my response simply was, we are not ashamed. It's our heritage. You know, my, my grandmother has, um, you know, I, my grandmother is from the South, from Alabama. You're in the South. Alabama, I don't, I've never, I haven't spent a lot of time down there, but they moved up North years and years ago. But, you know, I spend so much time in my grandmother's house being raised there, you know, spending all my weekends there. And she lives in Detroit. And I didn't realize that her house is a museum until I went there this year. Her house is a living, like the Black Archives. She has cotton on the wall. She has cotton, picked cotton on the wall <laughs> in a picture frame. She has like the black mammy, you know, sculptures in her, in her home. Just like all of this history, you know? And, and the thing is I've been going, it hasn't changed since I was born. <laughs> nothing, the couch hasn't changed. You know, grandmothers, nothing has changed. But you don't realize the implications of those messages until you learn them. And then going to HBCU is so important for me. It was so important for me to learn to not be ashamed of that history, to own it, and then to refute against it. And then to realize that the history you've been taught has been twisted <laughs> to make you, to make you shamed, ashamed, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so and that was saying that, and today I was teaching that chapter of Thomas Jefferson's Query 14 from Notes in the State of Virginia, where he's talking about his thoughts yeah. about the black body yeah. and imposing certain things on us that have absolutely nothing to do with us at all under the guise of using the scientific method. <laughs> okay, no, but oh, your grandmother, oh my, she's a culture bearer. I think of, there's a poem I always think of by Natasha. Trethaway. Trethaway. <laughs> yes. Did you see that poem? Or is that someone else? I feel like it might have been you. It was you or Dr. Kemp. It was only two. We both love her. <laughs> okay. Yes. I think about that poem all the time. Like, strangely enough, I think about it all the time. Because it was the one that was comparison, because she's biracial and her she was comparing to like being in the slave house and how she would have been enslaved but like her father was white so she i'm laughing because i taught that poem today <laughs> yes that's why i'm laughing it's called enlightenment and you're right that's the poem enlightenment by natasha trethaway i think about it for really sad reasons because i remember her mother was murdered by her stepfather. Um, but I remember that movie, and then I remember the Thomas Jefferson, the movie about Thomas Jefferson's black daughter came out, and it was just the whole, I think you began to understand that the people that, the founding fathers that we idolize, like we're taught to idolize, we're not having conversations about, you know, tearing Mount Rushmore down. And, you know, at 10 years old, it was my dream to go to Mount Rushmore. <laughs> So just thinking about, that's so crazy that you taught that today. I think about that poem all the time. I really do. And I think about it all the time. Funny that you're saying that, Carlin, because that's the discussion we had today. And I said, you were learning about this at an interesting time in American history where people are talking about snatching down monuments and taking down the Confederate flag. Yeah. You know, and, and I'll tell you this story quickly. I remember in 2000, maybe five or six, I had a student who was from a town west of here and African-American. He said, but my school, public school, you had all races and it may have even been a majority white school, possibly. But he said, my high school, students were not allowed to wear t-shirts or sweatshirts with any black themes, including FAMU sweatshirts or t-shirts. However, white students could wear 
shirts with the Confederate flag. And sure, FSU Seminoles shirt. And the only reason they're able to get a pass on that is because the Seminole Nation has allowed it. But right now, I'm sure there are going to be other discussions about that, because I see what's happening with the Redskins in Washington. A lot of FSU students recognize the history or <laughs> when they're doing the chant, the FSU chants. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm a knoll, and, and, and that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> that a lot. And I took classes at FSU. I, I gladly, you know, use my amenities. But it's, it's, I mean, the thing is, the things, the matter, the fact of the matter is that everything we've been learning, like everything, all this learned behavior, learned values, are being completely uprooted. And so it's really a matter of like, and it's so interesting because, you know, I've been interacting with white people, and it's always like, what do you say? Like, what do they say? Because no matter what, the conversation is going to be uncomfortable. Um, but really, it's coming from a place of like learning. Like, you know, you can say something wrong to me, but if I correct you and give you the education, it's about us both becoming more informed and choosing to think differently, you know, mm -hmm. instead of conforming to the ideas that we've been taught post college, like pre college. Um, so yeah, it's just, I mean, interesting time for you to be a professor and teaching these things. Oh, wow. I'm Is it? Yes. I had your class, you know? <laughs> oh, I'm grateful. Like as stated, you were absolutely amazing. Okay. And, uh, whew, blessed to have you there. And, you know, I'm going to ask you, and I know you're interviewing me, but yeah. I noticed the sensibility on the West Coast and especially where you are is somewhat different. How are people processing this out there? Well, California is traditionally known to be very liberal. So I've kind of been, I spent two weeks in Southern California in Ladera, actually, which is a very wealthy, very white uh, OC neighborhood. Um, and then now I'm in Oakland. So I've gotten both kind of extremes of it. Um, Oakland, of course, the Bay is, they, the show, they show up. Um, Oakland's known for being very radical. And when I first, you know, started, when, the, when after George Floyd was murdered and the protests started happening, we went out to one just to kind of get some air, see what was going on after a lot of the looting and, um, you know, uprising that started. And all white people out there, droves and droves and droves of white people with fists and Black Lives Matter signs. And I was, I was shaken for a number of different reasons as any black person would be. Um, but of, it's been very like grassroots and responsive. And I feel like we're having a different protest for a different reason every day, to be honest. Um, which is nice to see, but also scary. Um, whereas in Southern California, um, we were in a very insulated uh, Caucasian home. And, you know, the mother was very, very open with us. I think she up front, you know, it was, it was three black kids came and stayed in her home for uh, her friend, my, her daughter's birthday. And, um, you know, she was telling us the truth. She was just like, this has unearthed so much hate, you know, in her community and that it made her uncomfortable, you know, and it was shocking to see that she was so uncomfortable with the language and the ideas that, you know, this very quiet, sterile community had. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it just goes to show that like, you can't trust anyone until they speak up and like tell them, tell, tell them themselves basically. Um, I think for so long, you know, I grew up in a very white, upper middle class Jewish community. Um, and the thing is, people assume like, oh, we don't have these issues. You know, we don't have race issues. We don't have discrimination. We don't have systematic racism. But the thing is, you don't realize how people think until they speak up. So I think that's kind of the case for a lot of different people. So it's definitely been interesting to kind of be in both of these spaces right now. And I give your friend's mother credit mm -hmm. for sharing 
Okay, and I, I think maybe that's a large part of the problem. You know, we keep a lot of this in, and, and, and many times we don't know what we're stepping into exactly. because people are very silent about issues. And I think people but, are silent because they're in fear, and that's why, mm -hmm. you know, we're in, a, we're in the era of allyship, and, you know, that means something different for everybody and every brand <laughs> who is an ally. I work in advertising, but, <laughs> um, you know, like I said, it's uncomfortable to ask. It's uncomfortable to bring it up. Like no one wants to bring up race, you know, <laughs> no one wants to get into that argument, but for those who are willing and have it in like genuine intention, you know, if you're being intentional, um, that I respect that so much more than being yes. about the words coming out of your mouth, you know, because that can be fixed. <laughs> but the genuine concern cannot be faked. <laughs> right. And, and the thing is, genuine and concern. I, I, I'm also concerned about, and your friends and mother mentioned the ugliness. And, and, and politically, what's going on and how it is, ah, and my heart is broken. My mother is in her late 70s mm -hmm. and she said, I've never seen anything like this before in my life. That's scary. <laughs> I know. And my mother is from the South. I know. Said, I've never seen anything <laughs> like this young, before. Young people are trying to be like, oh, this happened before, but I don't, the thing is there's so many new resources and tools and weapons to hurt people and also to help people. So we're at a great time where we can innovate so much, but also there's a lot of, the resources are evenly distributed. So people are, you know, going to react. So it's a scary time to be a black person. And that's something that I don't shy away from telling my non-black friends, um, but, people show up in different ways and you can show up on the front lines. You can show up with donations. You can show up with protests. You can show up. I get, you can show up with social media posts, but I, and I think we both chose to show up, show up with content, with safe spaces, um, with resources, um, with information. Um, and I think that's what rootedness is like something that everyone needs to hear. You know, every potentially ashamed black person needs to Okay. Hear. And that, and especially now, my sister said, Nat, my goodness, this vision, she said, that ability to see around corners. <laughs> I mean, like, how did I think to reach out to you? And, and we, the, the, we haven't told the viewers yet, but we canceled twice on each other. <laughs> okay. We're going to do this today. Yes. But the fact that now I'm talking to you on this day, on a day when you're, you know, teaching about stuff that's so relevant right. to your students, my audience, like it's such right. a- And so many things have transpired since the time we were supposed to have the initial meeting. So I think it was just meant to be, meant to be. Right. So as we kind of, you know, move towards the end of the conversation, one of the things I knew I had to ask you was, how has your hair been a part of, part of honoring that legacy? Um, and what is the rootedness, um, of course, your hair being attached to your head, but you have truly have stems, like you have growing stems that have stories. Um, and how do you, how does your hair help honor that legacy? Uh, it helps to honor the legacy in that it is representative of who we are originally, okay, who we are without shame. And, you know, even walking through, minding my own business, and I applaud them. It's, it's apparent to me that a number of folks have seen Chris Rock's movie, okay, his documentary about hair. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I have people stop me mm. often to talk about my hair. Yeah. And a number of them are not black. Yeah. But as you stated, taking it to the root, that's what it is. And when I look in the mirror, I see Ella Lou, mm. my maternal grandmother. I see 
Zudi, my paternal grandmother. And rooted to those important ancestor figures, male and female, who have sacrificed so much. And I think that's the message we're not getting through that hurts me. We are not telling our young people how much these people sacrificed. And for folks to try to make you ashamed of who they are, no, we can't do that. That's what rootedness is about, to elevate them. Because if it weren't for them, we would not be here having this talk today, okay? Changing the world, we would not be here. And I feel like so many people are uneducated about their history. And, and like, the more you say it, the more it hits home because, you know, like I said, when we read history books, our history is twisted and we're taught to be shamed about what happened, what happened to us. But when you look at how our people have responded and built this country and built communities and built subcultures that people now take advantage of, you, you have to be proud. And I feel like if, if more people knew that, they would attack the world feeling like they had, you know, the resources they need to survive. And that's like the, your parents. And so I think of like my grandmother who is now, I think 88 now, um, and she was a nurse and she put my mom through private school. And um, my mom is a direct reflection of her and I'm a direct reflection of my mom. And so I have to be so grateful for like, I'm like Marilyn, you know, and we don't even have a super close relationship anymore because she actually, she has dementia. Um, and so now she's kind of slipping away from me a little bit, but you know, when you're young, you don't realize that your grandparents got you here. Like they yes. truly, they groomed your parents to groom yes. you. Um, and so when you think about the sacrifice that they've made, it makes your purpose here so much more intentional, you know? Um, and it makes my career, you know, working in advertising can feel very vain. It can feel like... And especially, I'm going to ask you, and, and I know you're closing, yeah. but to be a Black woman in advertising, trying to promote and represent us, that is a task. You know, I want to ask, how do you do that? I'm at the start of it. I'm at the start of it. And I will say the most interesting thing is, um, and we don't listen, closing is when we want to close. The, the kitchen does not close. <laughs> As my grandmother said, she would always say kitchen close. But um, so the program I did was an adver a diversity and inclusion program. Um, so the point of the fellowship I did to get me into advertising was for black and brown people to be in, in those spaces through Verizon. Um, which I realized was a marketing tactic in itself, which I'm fine with for Verizon. But, you know, one of the first couple days I was there on the job working at the company that I currently work at, an HR person asked me, like, just what it means to be the token and do I feel comfortable being a token, you know? So... Really? <laughs> yeah. um, we were the fact that you earned the right to be there? Well, the thing is, the context is more so like understanding tokenism um, and how we may feel about people perceiving us as diversity hires. Mm. Um, and so that's... Excuse them. Excuse them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the reality, and you know what the reality is, is like, I think I love, I'm so glad I went to FAMU because I kicked and screamed and did not want to go there. But it changed my mission completely. Whatever I wanted to do in life, it was like, I wanna do this, but because I'm black, it means more. Like me getting there means that much more. And the work I do is going to mean something different than it might mean for um, a non-black person. So since she was asking about the tokenism thing, I was just like, you know, I don't really mind being a token. Um, like I told you how I grew up, I've been a token most of my life. But if I, have to, if I have to be the token to get in the room so that I can bring my people with me, it can be me first. Like, it, it can totally be me first because once you invite me, I'm flipping the whole table. So um, 
for me. Rootedness, rootedness. That's right. You invited me. That was your fault. <laughs> so for me, you know, I'm at the very early stages of my career. And so I've been able to talk to people who have been through the worst of it. Um, you know, the times when they pick you out of a hat to join the meeting because you're the black person and it's a, you know, a black director in the room or, um, you know, it's crazy because in advertising, 90% of the execution is based on data. And that data comes from populations outside of people, mm -hmm. not of white people, of everybody. So it's just like, when you look at the data, it's just like, what, how are you missing this, you know? How are, the tone deafness is still out of this world. Um, so it, it changes my mission, you know? I haven't experienced anything yet, but I'm also just like, I'm kind of fearless. <laughs> I'm excited for the challenge and I feel like it's supposed to be me, honestly. Um, and I'm excited to, I, I tell everyone I know about the program I did because it's not a secret, you know? I found out about it through FAMU, through HBC Connect. It wasn't a special, you know, email for Carlin. <laughs> anyone can apply and I, and I want to take everyone with me. So, um, yeah, but thank you for asking me that. You're talking about, and, and I love that you said no fear. And I told my students that don't be afraid, be prepared. Uh -huh. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. That's mm -hmm. what I say. Um, so I'm going to ask you one more question because I know we're going to keep talking and talking and talking. <laughs> um, the one thing I always like to ask people to close it out is when has been your proudest moment while having your locks or a time where you felt most beautiful? That's a hard question, Carlin, because, because. Yeah. yeah, take a moment, think about it. With them, I always feel whole. And, and like I said, I feel ready. Yeah. I'm ready. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I can't think of a stand out moment with them. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because especially when you're in places that you haven't been before, you're not thinking and people are just looking. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's your crown. And I think it, it, it's, a, it's a hairstyle that I think you get because you don't want to conform. But it also, once you get it, it's like, I can't unsee you. Right. <laughs> um, okay. It's like, and I, you the same way. I had, um, I got faux locks before I got locks. And that's when people were like, that's, that's you. I can't conform. <laughs> And, you know, when I think about what I was saying before, like the wise women, the, the Dr. Kemp's, the Dr. Grable's, um, I think of women who are in their final form. So, and you being... Oh, thank you. I've been there for years. So, um, and just evolving, evolving. So, um, thank you so much for speaking oh, to me. This Colin, thank you. An honor again and a privilege. This has done my heart good. Yeah. Thank you.